Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. It's Friday, August the 30th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Brendan O'Leary is Lauder Profession of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's also visiting professor at Queen's University, Belfast. He was a political advisor during the making of the Belfast Agreement and also a power-sharing advisor to the United Nations. His new book, The Three-Volume, A Treatise on Northern Ireland, is without a doubt the most comprehensive study of the history of that political entity. He joined me to discuss the past, the present, and the uncertain future of Northern Ireland as it approaches the centenary of its establishment. Brendan O'Leary, one of the many reasons I was looking forward to talking to you today was because I thought you might be the person best qualified in the world to answer this uh, first question. In a in a couple of years' time, we will be commemorating or celebrating or at least marking 100 years of the entity known as Northern Ireland. But is it a province? Is it a country? Is it a state? Is it a statelet? Is it a region? What is Northern Ireland? An excellent question. Uh, it's certainly not a state, though that, ref- though that description is sometimes used. It's not a state because uh, it was never officially designated as such. It's entirely subject to the sovereignty of Westminster. Uh, when it was established, its boundaries were not under its own control. It was subject to a boundary commission. So I think the most accurate description of Northern Ireland is as a devolved entity inside the Westminster system of government, one that has been modified from what was in effect a majoritarian tyranny between 1921 and 1972 uh, through to a system which is now formally on paper uh, a power-sharing system uh, that worked very successfully between uh, 2007 and 2017, but is now obviously um, in a condition of paralysis as we await the outcome of the UK's exit from the European Union. The Irish Republican critique, or maybe even a broader critique of Northern Ireland, is that in that artificial construction, that that inevitably led to the sectarian majoritarianism which you described there, and that essentially, that the that as an entity, it contained the seeds of, if not its own destruction, at least the uh, the contradictions which made it ultimately untenable. What What do you think of that? It is conceivable that Northern Ireland could have been governed differently after 1921. Uh, James Craig, later Lord Craig Avon, promised in a letter to Lloyd George that uh, the new Northern Ireland government would excel in fair and impartial administration and set an example uh, to the new Irish Free State. Sadly, that did not prove to be the case. And I think uh, one of the reasons for that was the Ulster Unionist Party had mobilized a pan-Protestant coalition against home rule and was unable to make necessary 
reforms that would have incorporated Northern Ireland's new Catholic population as equal citizens. If they had moved in that direction, the Unionist monolith would have split radically, as it later did in the early 1970s. And the incentives to preserve party unity, to constantly win uh, elections to the Northern Ireland House of Commons under a Westminster-style system inhibited whatever uh, willingness there was to treat Catholics as equal citizens. I can recall when I was uh, a relatively young fellow when the troubles were still on and when the Republic was still mired in economic stagnation and depression, there was a kind of a, a popular trope that we lived in an island that was occupied by two mirror image failed states which were both weighed down by the history of their own sectarianism and narrow-minded ideology. I think it's fair to say that, that you don't accept that thesis. I don't. I think it's a, an example of false equivalence. The Irish Free State started off in uh, extraordinarily difficult circumstances. It had lost its industrial heartland, in effect, in Belfast. Um, the aftermath of the Civil War was devastating. And nevertheless, the uh, makers of that state built a new set of institutions, uh, were rather successful in avoiding um, serious discrimination against the uh, British and Protestant minority that was within the Free State. And over time, by the late 1930s, they had put their house in order, and de Valera had um, succeeded uh, the Coman Nigel government and uh, successfully uh, created his own constitution. And Kirk in 1914, it looked that, like the Irish Free State, was the much greater success. Northern Ireland, uh, officially, uh, if there had been a proper audit and inspection, was bankrupt. Uh, it had not succeeded by comparison with the Irish Free State in using self-government to successfully advance itself in any significant way, economically or commercially. Now, World War II saves the Unionist regime in, uh, in many respects against its own preferences. The uh, arrival of the British welfare state, uh, the development of regional forms of Keynesian economic development assisted Northern Ireland. And by the 50s, it looked like Northern Ireland was much more successful economically uh, than uh, what had then become the Republic of Ireland. But if we if we go forward from that juncture, it's quite clear that um, the South has had extraordinarily better and more intensive economic development. Its educational system has, over time, proved to be much more inclusive and much more uh, successful at building intense levels of skills. So that today the two economies aren't aren't comparable, uh, and that's partly because of the way they've been governed. Now, this is not to give uh, all Irish governments since 1920, some uh, uh, A-plus grade. But it is to suggest that if you compare the two entities over time, it's not fair to imply that they were mirror images of one another. It is true, of course, that there were lots of Catholic majoritarian bigots in uh, what's now the Republic, and it's true that there were uh, liberal unionists and liberal Protestants. But on balance, if we look at the two regimes over time, there's no question which one treated its um, major minority better and more fairly. And partly that was par uh, simply a question of scale. The minority in what became the Republic was much smaller. Most of, uh, on average, it was better off 
than the surrounding uh, new new co-citizenry. And therefore, unless there had been deliberate expropriation, uh, that that population was not going to suffer as badly um, as its northern minority counterpart did at the hands of the unionist regime. And then what you have, I suppose over the course of the 100 years, if this centenary is approaching, you have this, as as you've partly touched on there, a sort of a flipping of the coin where the part of the island which was seen as the most prosperous, possibly as the most progressive, certainly as the most industrialised and the most modern, um, gradually became less so, I suppose, or at least ceased to move forward. Whereas the part in the south, and I'm not over-romanticising the history of the last 50 or 60 years, but it did become more prosperous. Uh, it did become more liberal-minded. Uh, and it became, I suppose, more more progressive in general. And so now you have this entirely different dynamic from what we were talking about 100 years ago. And I wonder how much that, even apart from the demographic changes, which I might come to in a minute, how much that changes the nature of the equation or the dialectic on the island? Well, it's it's difficult to talk in a, in a, a few slogans about transformations over 100 years, but you're absolutely right, Hugh, that if, if we look at the arguments that were once made against Irish reunification, uh, proposition number one was that the South could not afford it because it was economically backward compared to the North. Uh, secondly, it was observed that the British welfare state had transformed uh, the living of the worst off in Northern Ireland and there was no comparable uh, level of health or other uh, welfare benefits to be established in the South. And thirdly, uh, there was the supposition that um, Ireland was uh, subject to Catholic authoritarianism and was uh, radically illiberal by comparison with Great Britain, if not exactly uh, with Northern Ireland. No one can use those arguments today, and those arguments were used against Irish reunification. Those arguments against uh, Irish reunification uh, were fairly compelling in their time, but they can't be deployed today. Today, the South is richer. It's um, more tolerant. It's more pluralistic. Uh, it's an attractive place, both for uh, foreign capital and for migrants. Uh, it's still true that Northern Ireland is losing some of its best talent to elsewhere in these islands and indeed to Europe and North America, whereas Ireland, uh, remarkably by comparison with the 19th century, is a place which attracts uh, immigrants. So this is a, an astonishing transformation when uh, looked at over the long term. And what are we to make then of the position of Ulster Unionism with all those those previous suppositions turn, turned on their heads essentially? Where does Ulster, Ulster Unionism stand in the, in the 21st century? As in, what does it actually stand for? Well, I think the um, connection to Great Britain is genuinely felt. Uh, I would not be among those who would ever doubt the British identity of Ulster Unionists. And at the beginning of this century, uh, as the Good Friday Agreement began to be implemented, one could imagine that Ulster Unionists, by belatedly reforming themselves, by accepting radical power sharing, by accepting cross-border institutions across the island, by accepting police reform, had made, uh, remade Northern Ireland in such a way that cultural Catholics would no longer find it a cold home, 
and could live contentedly with their rights to their Irish citizenship and Irish identity protected, they could accept the Union and they could accept a British version of the Union in which the Union was a multinational state that was culturally liberal and pluralistic. But it seems to me that uh, the failure fully to implement the Good Friday Agreement and the subsequent repercussions that have flowed from the UK's referendum of 2016 have destroyed that prospect. Peter, Peter Robinson's very careful warnings to his party that uh, they should take care, in effect, not to follow the Brexiteers in their uh, rush to get out of the European Union have been studiously ignored. If you like, I think uh, Austrian unionists have, we, we are likely to look back at this moment as a major strategic error on the part of Austrian unionists. They could have chosen to use the moment of the UK's prospective departure from the EU as an opportunity. One more way of um, having Northern Ireland treated exceptionally, that it would have been part of the EU for market and customs union purposes, but part of the UK in terms of formal sovereignty. They could have uh, presided over making, the, making Northern Ireland have the best of both worlds. Instead, they have hitched their wagon uh, to the Brexiteers, and I think they, they will eventually pay a long-term price for that. I do wonder why they took that course, you know, occasionally over the last 20 years since the since the Good Friday Agreement, you know, I, there, there have been murmurs from within, probably more within the Ulster Unionist Party, but maybe occasionally from, from broader unionist political forces of, of the necessity of making the argument positively for the union. In other words, you know, pointing to the many benefits of being part of a, of a large country with a great history like the United Kingdom, that had a history of tolerance, of religion, that had been economically successful, that had opportunities in the future, and that was open-minded. But those were always in a minority when I, uh, for my sins, listened in to party conferences of the DUP and other parties. Indeed, but we, we should think back on a, a key moment in, I think it's 2012, it may have been uh, 2011. Peter Robinson made a speech in Dublin where he set out his ambition to make uh, it clear that the DUP wanted in the long run to attract Catholic voters. Now, that may have seemed almost comical to many observers, but strategically it was the correct move. Um, if over time those cultural Catholics who were content with the Union could be persuaded that the DUP would not be a party that um, either apologized for the past or was willing to contemplate serious forms of bigotry in the future, then that made a, a great deal of sense from a, a Unionist point of view. How to ensure the stability of that section of cultural Catholics in the North who were content with British citizenship, how to ensure that they would remain that way uh, was, was the key question. And I think that's what they totally jeopardized by their response to the referendum in, in 2016. Uh, it's those cultural Catholics, many of whom vote for the Alliance Party or who don't vote, who are now uh, much more likely to be available for returning to the, if you like, the beliefs of their ancestors, uh, that the best way of conducting their lives is inside a, a reunified Ireland, inside the European Confederation, rather than remaining within the UK. So listening to that, I'm kind of, I'm reminded of a critique which has come from some quarters since the 
certainly since the Good Friday Agreement, uh, I suspect you may disagree with it, but I'm going to put it to you anyway, which is that the the complex forms of consociation uh, put in place by that agreement and various legislations that followed, um, that that they entrenched the, the the binary divide in Northern Ireland, and not only that, but they actually rewarded. Uh, the two more extreme parties on each side, the DUP and Sinn Féin, and encourage them always to play first to the base rather than to the centre and rather than trying to win the the middle ground. So in other words, that this was in a way baked into the new arrangements of 1998. It's easy to see why people might make that argument. However, they have a fundamental problem in explaining that what happened after 1998 was the triumph of both Sinn Féin and the DUP within their respective communities, not as hardliners, but as moderating parties. Sinn Féin, in effect, uh, stole most of the clothes of the SDLP. They accepted um, police reform. They accepted the institutions of the North. They participated uh, North and South in the Leinster House and Stormont Parliaments. They were um, a constitutional Republican Party. They moderated their platform. The DUP rejected the Good Friday Agreement initially, but once it had become the majority party within the Unionist bloc, then negotiated at St Andrews, accepted power-sharing, Paisley went into government with Martin McGuinness, a former chief of staff of the IRA, and uh, the DUP, in effect, uh, though it denied having done so, signed up to all the provisions of the Good Friday Agreement. Under Robinson, I think there was some prospect of, of the party continuing to reform and accept the principles of equality that underlay the agreement. So I don't accept that consociation uh, in and of itself, entrenched those identities. Those identities were already there. They've been there in their contemporary form since the 1880s, and, so, and there's a good argument for saying that they're they're much older than that. Uh, consociation also provided opportunities for those who rejected either the nationalist or the unionist uh, identities. Uh, the Alliance Party, the Women's Coalition, the Greens have all at various junctures uh, done moderately well under the existing arrangements and could do better. And nothing in the existing arrangements prevents them from expanding their electoral appeal. And we saw quite recently in the... Um, European parliamentary elections that the Alliance Party came through to take a seat. So I, I don't accept that consociation necessarily entrenches um, the hardliners. I think it, if it's done well, as it was done in the case of the North, um, it incentivizes greater moderation on the part uh, of those who wish to be the champions of their community. What happened, I believe, uh, is that the UK referendum on membership of the EU, a straightforward majoritarian device in which the separate identities of the different parts of the union were not respected, uh, broke apart settled expectations. As we know, both Northern Ireland and Scotland voted to remain within the European Union, whereas England and Wales voted to leave. That was not considered to be important in the initial aftermath of the referendum by the Conservatives. 
No special arrangements were put in place to consider Northern Ireland and Scotland's interests in the negotiation of the UK's exit. Instead, um, as we see most clearly in the Johnson administration, the UK's exit, uh, in effect, takes place under the chariot of, of English nationalism. And that, I think, is what has fundamentally disturbed the relations between the communities, uh, which were showing all sorts of signs of success before 2016. Um, People had begun to move outside of their traditional residences. There is some evidence of increased intermarriage and interaction, uh, especially but not only in universities. So there was some evidence that the securities put in place by the power sharing arrangement had given people sufficient confidence to explore uh, life outside their traditional lagers. So now we've arrived at this point, when I say now, I mean the sort of five-year period that we're in, where we have this enormous constitutional crisis surrounding Brexit, and we really don't have any idea exactly how that's going to resolve itself. And at the same time, we have approached this, this demographic tipping point, which means not necessarily a majority for one or the other persuasion in the North, but that no one has a clear majority anymore, particularly with the rise of those, those others to whom you referred, which has to fundamentally change, change the, the internal dynamic in Northern Ireland as well. How do Brexit and the demographic and social changes in Northern Ireland, how do you see them playing together over the next five or ten years? Well, I think that the, the first thing we should note is that we're, we're already into the world in which no group has a, a majority. Um, the Unionists uh, in some recent elections have been the plurality group, the largest group, but not a majority. And in some recent elections, they were neck and neck uh, with nationalists. So the world we're already in is a world of three uh, minorities, nationalists, unionists and others, with nationalists and unionists obviously being the largest bloc. I think one of the uh, foreseeable and likely scenarios is one in which cultural Catholics, they don't have to be believers, uh, will in fact uh, move from being uh, equal in size uh, with cultural Protestants to being the largest bloc and conceivably a majority. One only has to look at uh, primary school enrollment figures to uh, draw that particular conclusion. And that means we're in a transition from uh, the historic dominance of Ulster Protestants inside Northern Ireland to the prospective dominance of those of cultural Catholic origin. Now, that does not mean that um, Sinn Féin is going to be uh, extraordinarily dominant. It could well be that cultural Catholics split their votes across multiple uh, parties and identities, including those represented by Alliance and the Greens. But what I do think... Um, UKEXIT, I refuse to call it uh, Brexit because it's inaccurate. If it was just Britain that was leaving the, the European Union, we Irish would have less objections. But what, what UKEXIT fundamentally is doing is creating a new line of cleavage, one which cuts across um, traditional nationalist and unionist alignments. It's close to them, but it's not identical. And what it will do is, first of all, reinforce the likelihood that those of cultural Catholic origin will strongly prefer to return to the European Union. Uh, and that will mean that the best mechanism for that to happen is to support uh, Irish reunification. 
Secondly, but less importantly, um, I do think it will also have some impact on uh, liberal Protestant and liberal unionist um, sentiment, which is not represented by the DUP. That, in conjunction with demographic change, makes it much more likely that there will be uh, a potential majority for Irish reunification before the end of the 220s, possibly a little bit earlier. And given that, there's, I'm looking at a piece which you wrote for the Irish Times just a few months ago where you talk about the irony of the fact that the DUP, which, and I quote, opposed the power-sharing design of the Belfast Agreement, but in the decade ahead, it will become the most ardent defender of its veto powers. And um, we did a podcast a few months ago with Mary Lou MacDonald and we asked her about Seamus Mallon's suggestion that should the actual prospect of a referendum approach, that some form of supermajority, that 50% plus one would not be sufficient to change the constitutional status of the country. Is there a veto? I mean, in the last while, I've noticed the DUP uh, in response to the the controversy over the backstop saying that, I quote, a majority of unionists oppose the backstop, whereas it's clear that a majority of people in Northern Ireland actually support the backstop in, in the case of Brexit. Right. There's lots of um, complex questions embedded in that, Hugh, if you, if you don't mind. Let, let me try and parse them out. One is the question of how Irish reunification could occur. Under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, it's unambiguous that a 50% plus one majority in the North would uh, trigger uh, the requirement for a reciprocal referendum to be held in the South. Again, 50% plus one would um, be enough to achieve Irish reunification. No one but a fool would think that um, it would be easy for, for Irish reunification to occur with two simple bare majorities. However, it would be wrong to imply that somehow there should be some other mechanism put in place. You can't, uh, un- unless you, you oblige everybody in Northern Ireland to register as a nationalist, unionist or other, which would be uh, strongly corporately consociational, uh, much more consociational than I would envisage. Unless you do that, you have no way of uh, determining who is uh, supporting Irish reunification or supporting the maintenance of the re- of, of the union. It's an unworkable idea. Uh, but obviously, Irish reunification is better uh, if there is greater support for it in the north and in the south. And that will be part, I think, of Irish statecraft in the period ahead, both north and south. Sinn Féin is not going to reunify Ireland. It may be part of coalition building to achieve that objective, but it's not going to occur under the banner of Sinn Féin. It will require action on on the part of uh, parties in Dublin, and it will require the building of a broad consensus in the north. Now, uh, to go back to another issue that you raised correctly, it is true that unionists are now talking about uh, the claim that the backstop shouldn't occur because it doesn't have their consent, meaning it doesn't have the consent of the DUP and the UUP. Well, the problem with that position is they have not accepted that leaving the European Union violates the consent of the um, people of the North who endorsed the agreement in 1998. The 1998 agreement included provisions related to the European Union that go beyond 
um, the uh, absence of a, a customs union and uh, a shared regulatory market. And those provisions, in effect, are being violated by the unilateral determination of the UK to leave the European Union and not accept all of the legal implications of the Good Friday Agreement. What unionists are trying to imply is that the Good Friday Agreement left the UK's uh, sovereignty utterly intact, namely that the Westminster Parliament could at any juncture do what it liked. Um, and somehow those who made the Good Friday Agreement had signed up to that. That's not so. They signed up to an agreement which recognised uh, the self-determination of the Irish people uh, conjointly, north and south, in establishing a, a whole set of new institutions that would replace the, the previous order. Now, it is unquestionably the case that leaving the European Union without respecting the wishes of Northern Ireland to remain in the European Union, without recognising the institutional implications of that departure for the effective and fair running of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, doing all of that uh, without recognising this is highly partisan. Now, there's one thing we haven't touched on at all so far, and it's the subject of political violence and mm -hmm. physical force. Uh, Northern Ireland was uh, brought, came into existence against the background of an armed conflict. Uh, it was characterised by violence throughout its existence. In fact, I think it's fair to say that the reason why it's a subject of such international attention was because of the troubles and the fact that they went on so long, and indeed the fact that it's such a cause of intense focus in European politics right now is because of the threat or the prospect or the possibility of that sort of physical violence, political violence returning. Um, what's your read on the place of violence in this story and whether it still might have a place in this story? I think the most remarkable feature of the Good Friday Agreement and the, and the peace process it engendered is the remarkable reduction in levels of political violence inside the North and uh, violence elsewhere that flowed from uh, active violence in the North. So it's vital that that be preserved. And the best way to preserve that, obviously, in, in my opinion, is uh, to preserve uh, as best as possible all the institutions and arrangements of the Good Friday Agreement. Now, everyone is correct who points to the security dangers that may follow from the erection of fresh hard infrastructure on the island of Ireland. Uh, not only would that be a signal that the Good Friday Agreement had not worked in the sense of uh, achieving the promise that there would in effect be a borderless Ireland, but it would be a sign that uh, British governments had overridden strong Irish preferences, north and south, not least among border communities. So almost certainly that would lead to Republican uh, dissident organizations seeking to attack those installations. So everybody who is in any, any, given any attention to this matter is aware of this danger. And that includes, of course, the uh, chief constable of the Northern Ireland Police Service, as long as that particular uh, provocation does not occur, I do not anticipate uh, a significant revival of violence. Um, 
if that does happen, however, it, it is going to be uh, an incentive for Republican dissidents to operate. Now, if we ask further about whether there will be, in the long run, uh, a new uh, Irish-based civil war that would flow from uh, the possibility of Irish reunification after some future set of referendums. There, I'm um, fairly sanguine that there will not be a reproduction of the violence that accompanied the Irish Revolution in uh, 1919 to 21, or indeed the violence that occurred between 1969 and uh, roughly 2005. And the reason for that is, if there is Irish reunification, um, I think that the British military will withdraw from Ireland completely. The police service in Northern Ireland is substantially, if not comprehensively, reformed, and there therefore will not be uh, a significantly strong armed group uh, on the loyalist side capable of engaging in long-term and serious combat. The demographic changes that have taken place in Northern Ireland, which I outline in the book, also make the creation of a smaller, more homogeneous uh, Ulster Protestant uh, polity in the northeast of the island much, much less plausible than it was previously. And in consequence, I think there would neither be the, the territorial compactness required to create a new polity, nor the level of armed um, men required to produce a long-term civil war. Now, that doesn't mean I'm <laughs> to be counted among those who are blasé. Uh, I think what is vital uh, as the possibility of Irish reunification becomes um, more real, that the Republic put its house in order as best it can for that possibility. That includes long-term planning for having a significant British and Protestant minority uh, in the South that would be roughly one-sixth of the whole population of the, of the island. It requires thinking about further constitutional modifications in the South. It requires thinking about what patterns of reunification should be contemplated. Should there be a continuation of the power-sharing agreements inside the North, uh, with the Good Friday Agreement being flipped and there being a British-Irish intergovernmental conference in which Britain would still have some input on affairs in the North. That's one model. Um, should there be discussion of federalizing Ireland? If so, what kind of model of federation should be thought about? All of that thinking has to be done in advance and there has to be some level of institutional and policy planning. I tell people and they're, they're uh, amazed that Korea has a Ministry of National Reunification. I supervised the doctorate of the woman who's in charge of preparing um, for women's rights questions in the event of the two Koreas reunifying. Now, Korean unification is not on the immediate agenda, I think we can all agree, but they have been planning for it for an incredibly long time in South Korea. No comparable effort has been, I think, ever attempted in the South. And it's, in my view, time that happened, not because reunification is inevitable. It isn't. But because that kind of planning is sensible, if, if you can see that reunification is, is a possibility. 
that's a fascinating thought on which to leave it and I will think further about that but we shall leave it there thank you so much for your time Professor Brendan O'Leary thank you Hugh and that is it for today's podcast thanks to our producer Jennifer Ryan and our engineer JJ Vernon remember that you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts on Spotify on Acast or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be and you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts you can email me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.